This week on Behind the Lens, the Orleans Parish School Board is fighting a lawyer's request to depose NOLA Public Schools Superintendent Henderson Lewis Jr. as part of a class action lawsuit filed by John F. Kennedy High School families in the wake of the 2019 graduation scandal at the school. Louisiana was expected to disperse over $5.5 million to New Orleans for rental assistance, but has only given out $115,000, according to a presentation earlier this week to the New Orleans City Council. The New Orleans jail is experiencing what appears to be the largest outbreak of coronavirus among detainees and staff at the facility since May. And the Orleans Public Defender's Office is criticizing the NOPD for several recent arrests of people on low-level charges who came here fleeing Hurricane Laura. The lawyers argue this type of aggressive policing adds an unnecessary burden for evacuees already dealing with major trauma. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is here. Hello, Michael. Morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle joining us. Hi, Nick. Hi, Carolyn. And the Lens editor is here, Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Morning. If I can also just take a second here, I want to just note uh, that this is going to be our 100th episode behind the lens, which we have now been doing for almost two years. Uh, so, yeah, I know it's uh, it's it's hard to believe. I just want to say thank you to uh, to our listeners who have helped kept, uh, keep this going over the past two years, and uh, and just mention that if you if you like the show, if you like the lens, please uh, make a visit to uh, thelensnola.org/slash/donate and uh, give what you can. Thank you very much. Thanks, Charles. All right, the news. It was a busy week. We're going to start with education, Marta. New Orleans Public Schools Superintendent Henderson Lewis Jr. has been subpoenaed as part of a class action lawsuit filed by John F. Kennedy High School families in the wake of the graduation scandal that took place in 2019 at that school. NOLA Public Schools is fighting the deposition. The class action filing also gives us more insight on grade change allegations from last year that first came to light after you broke the story. So Marta, what's the lawsuit about? So the lawsuit originates from this 2019 graduation scandal where nearly half of the graduating class of John F. Kennedy High School found out nearly a month after graduation that they had not actually been eligible to receive diplomas. And that was due to a variety of administrative issues ranging from um, the way they handled credit recovery if you had failed a class or if you hadn't failed a class and they let you take credit recovery courses to the fact that some years they just like didn't even offer basic required courses. Families were suing to help recoup some of those losses. And why are they trying to depose the superintendent here? So the the families argue that he has critical knowledge of certain documents that are um, key to this case. And meanwhile, the district has been dismissed from the case. So, you know, it creates this interesting um, situation where the district says, hey, we've been dismissed and charter schools are independent and autonomous. And so we don't, you know, we don't control them. They grade, they're in charge of grading according to state law. However, the lawyers argued 
they have been heavily involved in the school's operations for the last year. And so if they're heavily involved in the school's operations, then then they, they have some degree of responsibility. It's interesting what's going on in the suit, I think, is, as, as Marta said, because, you know, on the one hand, you have the district, which has been dismissed from the suit, and, and they're, they're using the state laws on charter schools, which, which grant charter schools a, a, a pretty, pretty high degree of autonomy uh, in terms of day-to-day operations. So they're saying that uh, the district is saying, and, and the superintendent is saying that, um, you know, this is the, the charter school was in charge of its own operations. It was in charge of grading policies. It was in charge of graduation policies. Meanwhile, the plaintiffs in the case are noting one action and after another that was taken uh, by, by the district in, in its regulatory capacity after these stories start, first started to come out. That, those included a series of warning letters, a, uh, a major investigation. Uh, actions that were taken subsequent to the investigation include uh, the announcement of a citywide audit of all high school uh, student records. The district has always described itself as, uh, you know, primarily as as an authorizer and regulator. Uh, and I think the plaintiffs are saying, well, you are a regulator. So, um, you know, you're involved. What are the new details that have emerged about the grade changes? We knew previously that five administrators had been dismissed in late May, and we didn't learn until later that they had been dismissed because of an incident in May, not the initial allegations that we reported in March of 2019. So they were dismissed in May of 2019. It turns out there had been a second incident of grade changing, alleged grade grade changing in May of 2019. And what we've learned now is that it very much appears that that incident did take place and that it was intended to push more kids through to graduation. And those are details that we did not know before. And what about the kids who, the, the half of the class that were told after the fact that their diplomas were no good? What, what's happened to them? Roughly one quarter of them, I think, finished over the summer. They had, you know, small requirements. The school hadn't offered health one year or something, so they were able to finish that up online. But then there was another group of students, you know, 20, 25 students or so, who had to spend the entire next year back in school. And that was not something they had been expecting. The lead plaintiff in the suit is Darnette Daniels. Her daughter, Taylor, was one of those kids. And she says it has been a an everyday struggle to get Taylor to engage in school and Taylor just comes home saying or Taylor is home because everyone's been home because of the pandemic but is home saying I already did this I already did this why am I doing this again is the class action lawsuit asking for compensatory damages I mean initially the lawsuit was asking for their transcripts so that the kids could you know get scholarships and get enrolled in school and not be delayed in getting their dorm room assignments and things like that because oh. the lawsuit was filed over a year ago. It did also ask for compensatory damages, and so that, you know, is still on the table. Um, and I think these families have been through a lot. But obviously, at this point, you know, they don't need their transcripts immediately anymore. And Charles, I think you alluded to system-wide, this, this prompted some changes. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when this story broke and really started gaining momentum and after the uh, five administrators were fired which by the way they wouldn't admit for they wouldn't confirm or deny that they were actually fired 
action by uh, uh, the state inspector general's office. Uh, I'm not sure if that ever went anywhere because uh, it's as an investigation that theoretically ongoing at some point we weren't ever allowed to know details about it. And also he, uh, he called for a citywide audit of high school records, which they, uh, they started doing during the last school year. Is that right, Marta? They did. They did one round of it in the fall and then a second round in the spring that got, you know, interrupted by the COVID-19 crisis. All right, Marta, thank you. Thank you. Michael, moving on. Your story this week, in the wake of the economic collapse from the pandemic, the state of Louisiana set up a $24 million emergency rental assistance program in July. The response to that uh, announcement overwhelmed the system, forcing the state to shut down the application process three days after it opened. Now it seems that the state has only dispersed $115,000 for rental assistance in New Orleans of the one of the $5.6 million that was expected to come to the city. The city council learned about this at a Tuesday presentation. What is happening with all of this? That's a great question. Um, I don't think we have a full answer to that um, right now. I, I mean, the, the, the cause of the delay and, and why it's taking um, this money salon to take out, there, there are some theories. Um, but, you know, let, like you said, there was this overwhelming rush of applications over um, 40,000 in those three days. Um, and like you said, there's only been $115,000 dispersed here. And we also learned that there's also only uh, $1.3 million in what they call like the pipeline um, coming to New Orleans. So applications that are somewhere within the process and expected to eventually get the money. So even when those go through, um, you know, if they go through, we're still significantly under um, what the state had projected uh, the city would get from this program. Is it possible that they overestimated what would be necessary? I guess we don't know for sure. We talked to a housing attorney, Hannah Adams, um, for this story, and and you know her take was, whatever problem is happening with this program, it, it, it's certainly not for a lack of demand or need among households in New Orleans. Um, you know, she talked to us about. Um, you know, the, the day before our interview, she had gotten 30 different calls from from people looking for rental assistance programs. Um, you know, the, the theory um, that she put out and, and uh, council member Banks also discussed during the meeting, you have to wade through some some real bureaucracy to get through to this money. Um, the, the main thing being um, the application is it's a group of documents that total 55 pages, um, making it more difficult is that not only does a tenant need to fill it out, so does a landlord. So um, a tenant and a landlord need to work together to get this application in. And as people know, landlords and tenants aren't always on the best um, um, you know, terms. Um, so that can be tough. You know, what, one detail from the story that I thought was interesting, there's a, there's a tutorial on the state's website on how to fill out all those documents. And, and just the video tutorial itself is 25 minutes long. You know, it's interesting. I was actually sent a few articles from different places around the country, um, you know, after this was published, where similar rental programs are seeing similar pro problems where months out, mm. as people are facing eviction and having trouble with their bills, this money still isn't getting out. Um, and, you know, I, in the articles I read, particularly in, in, in a, a state program in New York, they were talking about a very similar problem that the, the, the documentation needed was really long 
and there were a lot of applications getting tripped up over small details, one missing document, one missing detail, one missed checkbox. Um, and you know, to fix that, then the state has to go back to the applicant and maybe the applicant has found a different uh, form of assistance by then. Maybe they've already been evicted and had to move out. You know, maybe they can no longer get their landlord on the phone for any reason. So the, the, the prevailing theory from people I've talked to is that the difficulty of the application process has probably caused a lot of errors within those applications that have stalled those applications. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would add that it's a government program that was talked about, you know, on the news and in the newspaper, you know, maybe not every no, not everybody reads the newspaper every day, not everybody watches TV news every day. This has got to filter down to the people who need it, which will take, you know, which at least takes at least a couple days uh, to get to filter down to all the people who might be might need it and might be eligible. Then you got to learn how to fill this thing out. Then you got to go through this 55-page application. Then you got to get your landlord to help to sign off on it as well. And you had to do all of this within a four-day window because that's that's when they ended up closing it. And and in terms of you know there was a lot of speculation on the council about a, about you know a potential low application rate in New Orleans. We had uh, 1.4 million dollars worth of applications coming in within that four-day window, you know, 115,000 that's already gone out, plus 1.3 million that's still in process, plus, you know, who knows how many more that were, you know, that were rejected for, uh, for ineligibility. I, you know, I can't say for sure that, that they didn't overestimate it, but, but it's, it sounds, it sounds to me like, uh, had this been able to operate for a long enough time that it could reach all the people who it needed to reach, it seems very plausible that 5.6 million was was somewhere around the, the right number. Yeah, and, and if I could add on to that, um, I, you know, I, I think part of the issue here is that the state is dealing with federal dollars, which um, you know have a lot of requirements, reporting requirements, and very specific uses. Um, and I think that's been one of the complicating factors. There, there's, you know, what, what Hannah Adams, the housing attorney, pointed out to me is that within the application, there are disclaimers about, you know, the, the potential need to um, do an inspection of the homes that are getting this aid. And um, she noted that there are um, a lot of homes in New Orleans that are rented out that wouldn't necessarily meet federal standards for certain federal aid, hmm. which might dis- disincentivize the landlords to, to kind of want to buy into this. Um, so that's something that she, she, she had brought up. What was the trigger on stopping well, that? That's related to what I was just going to bring up, which is that they got, they got this huge, they got more applications more quickly than they anticipated. They anticipated this 10,000 applicants across, potentially eligible applicants across the state. Uh, they got 40,000. And, and that's that's related to another point, which is, you know, let, let's not forget the other side of this, which is that's a lot of work for people um, at, the, at the Louisiana Housing Corporation. And I don't know how many people they have processing these applications, but I think it's fair to guess that it's an insufficient number. And that has been the nature of this crisis all along when it comes to government. The state didn't anticipate having to ha- having to administer this gigantic emergency program. It takes a while to hire a lot of people, bring a lot of people on for something like that. It's the same thing we had with contact tracers early early on. You don't just, you know, you don't just magic up 700 people. It's, uh, it's a process that takes time and, uh, you know, it, we, we were probably insufficiently staffed for it. Do we have any idea how New Orleans compares to the rest of the state? Like, is it 
is is this a specifically New Orleans problem or is the distribution a problem everywhere? I don't think we have the statistics, but I would be interested in finding out more on that. Yeah, I, I don't know what's been paid out to the state um, so far, but I want to piggyback on, on one thing that Charles said about you know the information about the program having to actually get to everybody um, and how if you found out about this on day five, you were already disqualified uh, for the program pretty much. And, and I think that's something interesting that people have been talking to me about um, during this crisis. I, I wasn't in New Orleans for Katrina, full disclosure, um, but I, I was talking to people who were dealing with, you know, a lot of these federal programs that popped up after Katrina and, and people talking about how the deeper you are in crisis, in personal crisis, you know, the more that your life has been personally damaged by a crisis, the harder it is to take advantage of programs like this to, to kind of even get yourself together emotionally to put, you know, these applications together, to pay attention to what's coming out, to, to apply on time. Um, it, it gets difficult the deeper you are in crisis, which I, I think is a very interesting point and might play into, you know, some people who were left out of this program. Your story talks a, a little bit about the possibility, there's no way to, to know this, but that the possibility that some of these applications have stalled is because some people withdrew from the process perhaps when the moratorium on evictions happened. And that reason, maybe other reasons, if they stopped, the renter almost is this middleman between the program, the money, the, the pipeline, and where it's eventually gonna go, which is to the landlord to pay their mortgage. So yeah, the, the money actually goes directly to the landlord through this program, but never the, even but the renter. The renter has to be the, the agent through which Right. So is there a way for a landlord to bypass that agent in this process? So that was discussed. I, I don't think so for a few different reasons. Um, I, I mean, it causes, I, number one, you just need information from the tenant um, in order to even know that there's a need. I think that this narrative that because of the eviction moratorium, renters aren't going to care about rental assistance programs, I, I have not I have not heard that personally um, from people facing eviction, from people who can't pay their rent. I think it's important to remember that if you don't pay your rent, there are consequences past just an eviction. You know, even even after you're evicted, um, in normal times for non-payment of rent, you know, your issues don't necessarily stop. Your landlord might take you to small claims court um, and try and get that um, you know back rent. Um, they might report it to a credit agency, which will come up next time you apply to rent an apartment. I met, you know, this is about a month ago, we, we had done a story on the growing homeless population here and I had talked to someone who, um, one of the reasons they cited for being homeless is that after cutting their lease off early, they had uh, received a $3,000 judgment against them um, which they were trying to pay back before they could go and rent a place because it was hard to get an application approved. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think this idea that you know once the moratorium is is in place, renters just stop caring or don't face any consequences is a little bit misleading. What what was it? We had five hundred applications still in process up in Baton Rouge in New Orleans. So that represents about one sixth of statewide applications. So, you know, in t uh, that are still in process. So, again, the statistical evidence points toward um, New Orleanians at least trying to take advantage of this in, in large numbers relative to the entire state. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. 
On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and the editor of The Lens, Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, and I cover education here at The Lens. If you've been a longtime reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick? We have a fall surge at the jail, coronavirus. Uh, The New Orleans jail is experiencing what appears to be the largest outbreak of coronavirus among detainees and staff since May. How many new COVID cases are there at the facility? Yeah, the numbers have changed slightly since my my story published on Monday. Uh, The new numbers are there are 74 people in custody who are positive and uh, 18 staff members. So how transparent have they been about this reporting? Well, for a while, um, at its height in uh, early summer, so in in May and um, kind of up until mid June, they were providing updates daily on the on the coronavirus cases. Um, and then in mid June, they they announced that, to their knowledge, there were there were zero cases in the jail. We eventually learned that this wasn't true. Um, a person in custody died at the jail about a week after they made that announcement, and during the coroner's report. It was revealed that that person was was actually positive for COVID nineteen. Since then, they've continued to do mass testing, but the reporting has been uh, to to the press and and um, as far as I can tell, to the to the federal judge who they'll sometimes provide these numbers to has been much less frequent. So this update was was rare. I don't think we we'd received an update for for several weeks, if not if not over a month. Yeah, you know the short version is we got a mission accomplished message back in uh, back in mid June, and that that was the end. You know that was the end of the story for a while, um, and then we didn't we didn't hear from them again until we started see, hear, seeing larger spikes. That uh, you know it became it got to the point where it was uh, where I'm, I'm guessing where it was hard to justify uh, continuing to keep people in the dark about this. How are they um, housing them? What are they doing with them? Basically, what we know is that they say they are quarantining people, um, and and now, I think previously they had been using some congregate settings. So anyone um, who was positive would be in a in a housing pod altogether. I think oftentimes they were in in two person cells. Now they're doing individual cells for those people who are who are positive. Um, and then the sheriff now is also. Um, that he'd like to, to renovate an old jail building that hasn't been used since 2015 um, to start housing positive inmates. And, and this would partly be funded by FEMA money um, and, then, and then partly ostensibly funded by, by the sheriff's office, although we don't know a whole lot about how that's going to work. Your, your story mentions the, the renovation cost. It's, I forget, $9.3 million or something or $8.3 million or something like that. Um, yeah, I believe that's right. Nine point three sounds right. How? Yeah. So, I would think that would take a while to to renovate a facility at that kind of cost. So, how's the timing supposed to work with coronavirus? You know, it's unclear. One, um, what we do know is that this is a temporary renovation. So, 
whenever the pandemic is over, it will be no longer in use. Um, when exactly they think they can get this done by is is um, less clear to me, but they're adamant that, that it is in fact temporary. Um, people are very suspicious, but particularly uh, kind of jail reform advocates are, are suspicious of the sheriff. They, they, they believe that he often wants to expand the jail um, and find these kind of underhanded ways of, of, of making the jail bigger. So in, in this case, at least the sheriff is attempting to um, ease those concerns by saying it's a temporary facility. We can account for the, the possibility that part of that, part of that uh, price tag results from having to, get, having to do a rush job on this too. Oh. Yeah. And their report says that all 74 COVID positive detainees are asymptomatic. That's what they say. And I asked them how they were defining this. I mean, given the kind of broad range of symptoms that, that people exhibit um, from COVID-19 to like to, uh, you know, headaches, to fatigue, to the, this whole range of, of symptoms, I found that... Uh, Frankly, it's somewhat hard to believe that that none of them were showing any of any of those symptoms. So, I tried to press them on that. They they didn't get back to me. I guess it's possible that that they are defining symptomatic as the sort of more um, serious respiratory symptoms that 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 we've seen, but it's unclear. Okay. All right. And another story on your beat. Orleans Public Defender's Office is criticizing NOPD. They've had a. a several recent arrests of people who've been here, who are here fleeing Hurricane Laura and its aftermath, but they're being arrested on low-level charges and the office is arguing that that's an, adding an unnecessary burden for evacuees. How many arrests have there been of evacuees that are here from Laura? So the Public Defender's Office says there's been about 37 arrests of evacuees and 27 of those have been for misdemeanor charges. and. Of those misdemeanor charges, about 20 of them have been for some sort of domestic incident. I think all of the misdemeanor charges, I think the, the public defender's office is urging the NOPD to use use a lot of discretion when, when deciding to make those arrests. How much discretion are they allowed to have, though, legally? What, well, what are that's the... a, a good question. Um, for a number of municipal and, and misdemeanor charges, they can decide to issue a summons instead of, instead of making an arrest. But in domestic violence cases, they have much less discretion, both because of state law um, and then also because OPD policy uh, dictates that if an officer has probable cause that, that some form of, of a crime occurred and if they can establish who the primary aggressor was in that incident, then they are mandated to make an arrest by policy. So so there's less discretion um, in, in those cases. Yeah, and obviously the, the concern, you know, when it comes to domestic cases here, the reason that these, these laws and policies exist is that a domestic situation can spiral out of control pretty quickly. And uh, the idea here is that the officers are taking steps in order to protect the victim. What is prioritized here is, is victim safety. The arrests are primarily being made in those hotels? Yeah, so the, the public defenders weren't able to provide us with the specific case information for the, the case that they were talking about, but we were able to identify a number of arrests from around these hotel areas that, that appeared to be of people. 
people with Lake Charles or, or Lake Charles area addresses that appeared in a few in a few of the the incidents we identified. There was specific mention that, that these people had evacuated from Lake Charles um, because of the storm. So we were able to get a look at, at some of the specifics of, of these cases, and you know they they ranged in their apparent severity based on on the police reports. So a few of them appeared to be uh, situations in where uh, the alleged victim was was truly fearful for their life, and these had been a, a re- recurring problem in the in a relationship, and and this person appeared to be you know. A, 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 an abuser, um, and then there were a few instances that it really appeared that there was a a more minor altercation um, due to these really stressful circumstances of having been pushed out of their home, and in in these instances, the the alleged victim said that nothing like this had ever ever happened before, that they never felt threatened. So these these are situations where. I think the public defenders would probably say there should be an alternative to jail. Jail is not the appropriate response for, for a situation like this. I think they're making a, a much broader argument, one that the country is having about what should be... Police reform. The police, you know, have their, have their hands tied here, as we mentioned. Um, so I think they're making an argument that, that there could or should be other ways to intervene other than placing someone in a jail. Um, especially in situations where it's it's not clear that there is you know it, there is imminent danger of, of someone being seriously hurt. It, it get, gets into something that is larger and more complex than than the current situation with Laura evacuees. Right, Laura evacuees are here on FEMA's dime, probably right. I believe so, uh, but I you know I don't I don't have that information directly in front of me. Also, like eventually FEMA's dime, but probably also their own dime at the moment, as far as if we're talking about stress levels. Yeah. Having never been through anything resembling this, um, what kind of timeline are you, uh, generalizations, what kind of timeline are you talking about? In this particular case, but we're talking about some parts of the state that were completely devastated. So, you know, I know the city has, the, the, you know, city officials have discussed this in terms of a, uh, a medium to semi-long-term situation that a lot of these people are going to mm. be in the city. It's unprecedented in terms of, you know, potentially in a non-pandemic time period, you might be in a congregate shelter, a gym, or, you know, a, the Lafayette municipal building or something that is much closer to your home than here in hotels in New Orleans, which are three hours away. If I could just add one thing, in terms of clarifying some language that's used by sources in the article, um, you know, we have some quotes, particularly from uh, from uh, Derwin Button uh, from the Public Defender's Office, you know, sort of referring to a lot of these crimes as being, you know, quote, minor, quote, low level. I, I did see some, some sort of reader objections to that language when referring to domestic situations, and that's absolutely understandable. Not to put words in Mr. Bunton's mouth, but I, I, I would say it's likely that he's talking about how these particular offenses are treated in the eyes of the law, which is as misdemeanors. Yeah, I think that that's accurate. I mean, I also think that he would point to the range of, of instances that these misdemeanor charges, you know, address. And we could see that in just the five cases that we looked at, this wide range of severity. So I, I think that he was putting
pushing for for some ability to discern between these these range cases. All right, that'll do it for this week. Y'all look pretty good for 100. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye. This is Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, our criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and the editor of The Lens, Charles Maldonado. To read all of the other stories this week, plus opinions, visit our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>